Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens, and sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to the listening audience this evening. Again, we are not just here to talk and for you to listen, but we are here for you to interact with us. Thank you in advance for interacting with us, and thank you in advance for encouraging others to tune into That's Truth. No matter where your friend or family member may be listening from, they can join us by tuning in and listening online at our website, radiolighthouse.org. To start out tonight's episode, Pastor, we have a question that has come in from a listener in the Southern Caribbean. I have a question for That's Truth. When a baby dies, do they go to heaven? Also, miscarriages, what happens? Um... I think we attempted to answer this question some time ago, and I just want to respond to it again because it um, it is just recently coming again. Um, there's no direct, definitive statement in the Bible that says if a baby dies or a person has a miscarriage, that that person uh, goes to goes to heaven. Uh, but it has all uh, it's almost a universal belief by all the major theologians uh, and the church that. And there is reasonable conclusion to believe that um, when a baby dies who has not had uh, the ability to understand or have knowledge or understand morality, uh, that when such a person dies that they're covered by the blood of Christ. There are one or two reasons, biblical reasons, for, for uh, holding to this position. One is the one that's given in Second Samuel chapter 12, verse um, 22 and verse 23. That's the case with uh, David after he committed sin with Bathsheba. Um, he was told that um, Bathsheba was, was pregnant. And uh, later on, you find it's part of God's judgment on David because of the sin of adultery and also because he had actually plotted and, and had uh, her husband killed to cover up his, his sin. Uh, God came on the scene and, and told David that the child would die, and the child did die. But it's interesting what David said in Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 22 and 23. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him but he shall not return to me. Yeah, that's an indication that we know that David was a righteous man. And when David died and David went to what is called um, Sheol in the Old Testament, we know from the book of uh, Luke chapter 16 that 
Sheol or Hades is called. There are two compartments, one for the righteous and one for the ungodly. And David is indicating quite clearly that when he died, that he would be able to go where the child is. We can only ass- we know that David is clearly secure in Christ and secure, and he's a believer. We know that he's going to a place of safety, a place of comfort. But the statement that he is going to the child would seem to indicate that the child will share the same uh, blessing as David and be in the same place as David. So that is one of the verses that is commonly used. Uh, by theologians and the church over the centuries to believe that when the child dies that uh, he goes to heaven uh, to be with the righteous. The other thing, of course, is uh, God's um, justice. God deals with us on the basis of choice and morality. Uh, We are going to be judged on the basis of choice and morality for our deeds that we know that were right or wrong. Certainly, you can't hold a child accountable for uh, morality when the child doesn't know right from wrong. Uh, and there's another passage in the scripture that indicates that a child is weaned uh, and to become right from wrong. Uh, I don't have the exact passage for that, but there's a passage that deals with that. So you would think that um, a, a just, righteous uh, God uh, would uh, not take an innocent person who has no sense of right and wrong and then uh, punish that, that child. Uh, we believe that grace and mercy and favor and the fact that Christ died for all sins, believe that in the grace of God, that that child will be covered under the uh, the purchase redemption that Christ has purchased with His blood, and uh, we, we believe that. And then, of course, the other thing is that <clears throat> uh, God's justice is impartial. The Bible repeats that again and again and again. So I, I believe that um, the child who does die without a sense of right and wrong, without a sense of accountability, uh, without a sense of morality, we do believe that that child will be covered under the blood of Christ and would experience grace and favor and will share in the blessings of those who will go to be in heaven. A follow-up question along those same lines. Isn't everyone born in sin, even a newborn baby? Well, we know from Scripture um, that contrary to the modern uh, philosophy that when a person is born, he's born with a, as a blank sheet. I think that was uh, the philosopher John Locke that advocated that people are born um, innocent and people were born without sin. The Bible makes it quite clear that we don't come into this world in an untarnished form or unspoilt way. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that when we come into this world, we inherit a sinful nature through our forefather Adam. And uh, David, if you look at Psalm 51, verse 5, he spoke to this matter in Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is not saying that his mom went out in the world and committed adultery or fornication that was born. But David is indicating in that passage that at conception he inherited a sinful nature. Because all of us who come to uh, Adam are offspring of, of Adam, um, indirectly, uh, we all inherit this, this, this sinful nature. Um, the Bible makes it quite clear as well in the book of Romans that it is through Adam's sin that we all became sinners and we all die through Adam. If there was no sin, there would be no death. 
uh, death is a result of sin. So the answer to that question is yes. When a person is born, they're born with a sinful nature. Whether it be a child, whether it be an adult or a teenager, you're born with a sinful nature. The Bible makes it clear that all people, with the exception of Christ, uh, are born with a sinful nature. But if you're born with a sinful nature, how do you reconcile that with the fact that they can be ushered into the presence of God? The answer we get to that is that is God showing grace and favor. Okay. As a member that we're being judged on the basis of morality, right from wrong, we've got to know right from wrong to, to, to come under the judgment of uh, condemnation. You also remember that the Bible says if there's no law, there's no sin. Right, and certainly in terms of a, a baby, there's no law that the child is aware of, of right and wrong. So we believe that the grace of God, uh, just like we believe that, uh, well, not everybody believes that, but I personally believe that the 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 uh, the death of Christ and the work that Christ did in the cross has put every man in the position where he can exercise his choice. Uh, I think that the same way uh, under Adam before he sinned, he had a choice, free choice. It is believed by, I think Thiessen is one of the theologians that uh, uh, hold to this position. That's why Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. And that makes biblical sense. Um, how can a person be held accountable for something that he has no choice to make in terms of change? That, to my mind, uh, seems quite immorally repulsive uh, on legal grounds. Uh, if I cannot in any way, and I don't have a, I can't, I can't respond. I can't, I can't make a decision. Uh, for the time I'm born, I can't make a decision. How then can you hold me accountable for that? So that is why uh, certain theologians believe that the death of Christ uh, has put man back in a position where man has a choice to make. On the basis of that choice, um, a person either um, accepts Christ or rejects Christ, lives up to the light that is given, or rejects the light that is given, but he be held accountable based on the fact that he has a moral choice to make. And that's what determines uh, God dealing with him. Thank you to the individual who sent in those questions. If you have a question, you can call and ask it live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Or you can send in your question on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed. And in the comment section, you can send your question or your concern. Maybe it's a question that you already know the answer to, or you think you have a pretty good grasp of how to answer it. But you think it would be beneficial for the rest of us to hear Pastor Murphy answer it from a biblical worldview It can be about what the Bible teaches on a particular topic, why the Bible doesn't say something, or how you should answer a question that your coworker or family member may say, even as an antagonistic attitude is prevailing as they are discussing Christianity or religion or um, whatever your topic may be. You can call and ask your question, 268-462-7420. Pastor, question for you. What is your view on gowned pastors and vested choirs? In other words, those that are dressed up. Yeah, I, I am somewhat ambivalent towards both of those things. Um, I am not thoroughly, thor- uh, thoroughly enthusiastic 
uh, about either of them, though I think a uniform choir that wears gongs um, is more appealing and perhaps more attractive, and there's some kind of a symmetry and balance that is there rather than everybody wearing different colours. However, my main objection uh, has to do with gongs and ministers, uh, uh, and I have a, a disdain uh, for any kind of evidence of priestcraft or some kind of ecclesiastical vestments that are worn so that a pastor looked like some kind of a university professor. I think it's a veiled symbol of egotistical pride. I think it's also a matter of self-elevation and no doubt uh, personal aggrandizement. The church is made up of a common brotherhood who share a common priesthood. And any, this, any attempt to make a radical distinction between the laity and the clergy I find to be both unscriptural and I find to be very despicable. Humility belongs to the pulpit. Any attempt at showmanship or personal display, uh, to my mind, is is totally abhorrent. So I'm not really uh, attracted by it. Um, I am not enthusiastic about it. Uh, I just think it's out of poor taste. And I don't like um, to see pride in the pulpit. I don't like to see... Uh, ostentation in the public, and I don't like to see aggrandizement in the pulpit. So I am more against the regalia on a pastor that makes him look like a professor, university professor, pontificating than I am with the choir. I'm more sympathetic with the choir wearing a gong than I am the pastor wearing um, these uh, displays that uh, are commonly seen today that makes him look like some, some professor from some university. Do you think some of that would be cultural, uh, or that's more of just a, a general? Well, I think it, it could be cultural in, in certain parts of the Western world. For example, uh, I think places like America. I think the universities and, and people and um, that's carried over from universities into into the pulpit. But for the Caribbean, for sure, I don't think that is needed. That's not something that is culturally common within the Caribbean. I just think it's trying to. Um, I think, it, it, to my mind, I see it as, as some kind of elevation. The same reason I don't like people calling people doctors, you know, doctor so-and-so, and you introduce them and stuff like that. Uh, I am I, somewhat repulsed by that because our Lord said, don't let anybody call you master, don't even call, call you father. So why not say Pastor Murphy or Brother Murphy? Why, why you have to use this, this kind of title? Um, so I, 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 I don't, I know other people would not object to it, quite frankly. But for me, I just think that humility belongs to the pulpit and we must not display either our learning or intelligence or credentials uh, in order somehow to be seen to be superior or elevated above other people. I just think that we need to come down from our high horse and just accept the fact that we are ordinary people called by God's grace and be thankful that he's using us. Along the same lines of uh, church and practices within the church, what are the biblical grounds for the practice of ordination? Well, I think, uh, <clears throat> generally speaking, ordination is a public uh, laying on of hands to set apart somebody for ministry or for service. And it is clear, uh, at least in four different places in the New Testament, where this kind of um, activity uh, did take place. And um, what we today call ordination corresponds to this laying of hands and setting this person apart for ministry. Uh, look at Acts chapter 6, verse 13. Acts 6, 13 says, And set up false witness, which 
Acts 6. Acts 6.13. And set up false witness, which said, this man ceases no. not to speak. You showed us Acts 16? Yep. Uh, uh, Acts 16. Uh, that was Acts 6. No, 13. Acts, this is 31. I might have, okay. I might Acts, have reverse. Acts 16.31. Let me I'll take credit for that one. Uh, Acts 16.31. This should probably fit a little better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. No. The passage I'm looking for in Acts wherein they um, set aside the seven deacons and they laid their hands upon them and they set them apart to become deacons in, in, in terms of service for the ministry. So I must have gotten that particular passage. Uh, Acts 6, 1 through 7 is what I'm coming up with. So let me pull that okay. up. Acts 6, 1 through 7 says, And in those days when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Verse 6 is the verse I'm looking for. And verse 6 says, Whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Yeah, that's the, the again, in a public recognition that these men have been chosen for a specific ministry. And part of that endorsement is that the hands of the apostles were laid on these men and they were set apart for the ministry. That's the kind of thing that is actually practiced in uh, modern ordination. If you also look at Acts chapter 13, verse 1 to 4. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And verse 4 says, So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost departed unto Seleucia, and from hence they sailed to Cyprus. Again, notice the practice again of setting apart. In, in the case, this had to do with uh, Saul and Barnabas, and they're now going to be sent out on the mission field to do a specific work of ministry. And the public recognition of that is that they separate them from the, the masses, as it were, they lay their hands upon them, and then they, they send them out to do mission work. Again, an example of what we talked about, ordination. Um, and then if you look at First uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, there's another reference. First Timothy 4, 14 says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Again, they, they, remember the presbytery of the elders, and in the laying on of hands of Timothy, on Timothy to set him apart for the ministry, apparently the Holy Spirit as well imparted a gift to Timothy. But notice the same concept. 
he's called to the ministry. Uh, the elders put their hands and lay their hands upon him, as it were, orda- ordaining him, recognizing his calling, and, and therefore Timothy functions. And then the last one, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. 2 Timothy 1, verse 6 says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of hands. Remember the verse before that mentioned that when he was uh, hands laid upon him, he was given the gift. Now it's telling him the same gift that God has given to you, stir it up. It's as though he had begin to lose interest. Uh, remember that Paul is going off the scene. All this weight of the ministry falls upon Timothy, and he's a little bit down in the dumps, as it were. Paul has to tell him, God has not given the spirit of fear, but of a, 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 a song mind, etc., etc. Now, he's telling him, stir up the gift. Um, and the whole imagery there is like a fire is burning, but it's going down, the ashes are beginning to block the uh, the air, and, and just that you take a stick and you stir it up. Paul is saying to, to stir. And then there's one final verse, First Timothy chapter 5 verse 22 this is more a verse of warning in regards to uh, ordaining or setting people apart and uh, not giving thought to it lay hands suddenly on no man neither be partaker of other men's sins keep thyself pure warning here that you know in your zeal and enthusiasm you see a young man or a young person that you think was suited for the ministry and um, you are hastily uh, choose that person for the ministry, you lay their hands upon them, and then later on you discover that you made the wrong choice. So there has to be some measure of maturity. Paul warns about the matter of um, not to ordain a a neophyte um, as a person without experience. So you've got to be very, very careful that in the process of setting a person apart for ministry, that that person meets the qualifications, the biblical qualifications, and not rushing to put people into the ministry. So what is to be accomplished by laying on of hands in today's day and age in 2023 by you laying on of hands on a young man who's being ordained to minister are you imparting a gift to him no we don't have that capacity to impart any gift but what is doing is that we are identifying with the fact that we believe he's called now i have refused to be part of an ordination service already because i didn't think the young man was called. The other pastors that went and laid their hands, but I didn't do it. So I think it's at the discretion of the pastor. And that's where you have to, you should know the person that's being ordained. And you should feel, you should have listened to him and somehow sense that he has the gift or you have this this capacity or whatever. But um, there's no impartation of gifts, but there is an identity and recognition that with the church that uh, God has called this person through the church. It's not the pastor calling somebody. The church absolutely has to endorse that particular ordination. So you're identifying with that church and the fact that you believe that the church is right in judging that this person has the appropriate gifts and calling to the ministry. That's basically what it is. Do you have a question? We would love for you to call and ask it. You can call and ask it live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question, and if you'd like to remain anonymous, just at the beginning of your message, just put anonymous or don't share my location. And when Sister Marianne takes the message and types it into the computer for me, I won't know what region of the world you are from. Uh, it'll just show up as a question. You can WhatsApp or text your question to one two six eight seven eight two one four. 
WhatsApp or text number again is 1-268-782-1454. A question that has come in. Good evening, Pastor. My question is, why would it be wrong for a woman who became pregnant as a result of rape to have an abortion, especially if she is not financially stable and feels as though she might resent the child for also sharing the blood of her rapist? That is one of the most common arguments that are used to support abortion. But it's, it's an exception to the rule, it's an anomaly, but I want to respond to this as well. Um, look, there's a lot of mysteries in life and we do not fully understand why somebody would be, God would allow somebody to be raped or something that is unusual to happen. But the reality is that if a person is raped, they don't have to become pregnant. A person who is raped, if taken to the, I forgot how long it takes, but uh, it's like 48 hours or even, uh, I can't give you the, I'm not a medical doctor in, in that regard, but I know it takes uh, a um, considerable amount of hours before they can actually, the egg can meet the ovum. Uh, so, the the when a person is raped, they can be washed out basically, or it can be search, uh, removed basically to ensure that the person doesn't get pregnant. So that's the first thing I would like to say. In the case where a pregnancy does occur, and whatever attempt was made to avoid the the um, the egg and the sperm meeting, if that um, attempt is made, it doesn't happen, and uh, there is some kind of conception. Um, the Bible says that God is a giver of life. We may not understand how and why he allowed it, but if there is conception, there's life, and it's God that gives life. And nobody has a right to take life that God gives. God gives life and God takes life, unless uh, God has given us a mandate whereby we take life. In the case of capital punishment, he that sheds man's blood, his blood shall be shed. And the New Testament says that the, the government does not bear the sword in vain. If there's a person that commits premeditated murder, there's no question in my mind about that. He should suffer and forfeit his life because he's uh, willfully, knowingly committed murder. The Bible supports that. But in the case of a rape, uh, the, a, a new person is involved in the process. Uh, a baby is not the the mother is not like some kind of a protein blob growing in the mother. There's there's a different chromosomal makeup of the father and the mother, so it's a different person than the mother herself. So the idea that it's just part of her body, therefore she can do what it wants to do with it, I don't agree with that. I'm just saying that once there's life. Our job is to protect life, and the Hippocratic Oath that every every doctor makes is that he must protect life. And science will tell you that life begins at conception, so we ought to try to preserve that life. Now, in a case of a person who is raped, you don't necessarily have to keep the child. The child can be given up for adoption. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's so many people in this world who would like to adopt a child. I don't know if you know that. There are not enough babies for people to adopt. Of course, there are a lot of legal entanglements involved in the whole thing, but there are a lot of people who would like to adopt babies. And I think the mother, rather than live with the conscience that she has killed a human being, and that might seem at first an easy solution to the problem, but years later, 
when she comes and face scripture or she comes under the song of the gospel, uh, uh, it may become a reality that she now begins to suffer the the pain and the anguish of having taken a life. It's not easy to take a life. Some people think it's easy to take a gun and take take somebody out off the scene, but you've got to live with the conscience that you've taken what something that doesn't belong to you. God has given that person life, yet you've taken it. So I don't think the answer is that the person should have an abortion. I think the answer should be that make the child available for adoption. Uh, and this is where, by the way, I think that churches, um, you know, we talk about these are the things that they should do, but that's where I think churches should try to offer some kind of a halfway house that could take care of a child or an orphanage to take care of a child in a case like that, and then become a, a, an adoption agency that can help the child to be adopted. You know, we, we just can't say that this shouldn't happen and don't try to come up with solutions. I think that's the weakness of the church, uh, especially within the Caribbean setting. Uh, in America, churches believe what I'm just telling you, and they, they check up all kinds of pregnancy centers, uh, after birth centers, to take care of these kids. We talk, uh, but we don't seem to come up with solutions. But I don't think uh, it is right for a person to take another person's life. The child had nothing to do with it. I mean, it's not as though she, the child wanted even to be here. The child mm-hmm. is here. And uh, you never know what that child can become. You never know. I'm convinced see, that part of the mess that we find in modern Western society is because uh, we have killed so many babies. In America, it is like, uh, I think it's close to 60 million people since 1973. It was 37 million at one time. But I think that those a lot of those people would have been lawyers and doctors, leaders, politicians, even prime ministers, whatever, missionaries. And I think in the Day of Judgment, we will discover to our dismay the reckless slaughter of human life and the price we've had to pay uh, because it is contrary to God's will. So I don't find that we must use uh, rape as an excuse for abortion. I know there's a lot of embarrassment when that happens. Uh, but there are ways, just like in the court, when a person is buggered, uh, a, a minor or uh, a, a young child is raped, the names cannot be given, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think that that kind of protection should be due to these type of people, and uh, we should assist them so that any shame or embarrassment that comes um, is minimized. But the important thing is the survival of the of the life and uh, see what God has for that individual and, and do our best uh, to help that individual as well. And if you are wondering what percentage of uh, women who seek an abortion are pregnant because of rape, in nineteen, in, excuse me, in 2019, USA Today reported that it is just 1% of women seeking to obtain an abortion. So... It is, as Pastor started out by saying, it's the vast minority of cases. Yeah, but but here's it, Nathan. You see, when you open that window and that door, mm-hmm. you know it, it. That is now used as a basis for widening the scope of abortion, yeah. and that's what's been happening. Thankfully, I would say this: the Christians in America, for decades, maybe three or four decades. Uh, I've been trying to push back abortion. Finally, they were able to get it done. Uh, but it was not without much prayer and, and um, legislation and, and lobbying and um, creating institutions to help these people. Uh, 
I just hope it never comes to the Caribbean where it is legalized because it becomes a means of convenience now for people to get rid of children so that it also leads to a lot of promiscuity because if I can commit an abortion, uh, it doesn't matter how promiscuous I live. It, it, it actually breaks down morality. I forget where I heard it, but not too long ago I heard a study cited of what percentage of babies that are discovered to have Down syndrome while they're still in the womb are now aborted. And I was, you know, it was a program that was playing. It was just in the background. And I heard the study and pastor, it came so close to bringing tears to my eyes. It just gripped, I set aside what I was doing and thought about how many souls, how many individuals have been aborted just because a doctor said, I think your child has this particular medical condition and um, it's sad, uh, but only that in China, girls. Yeah, they aborted so many girls because most of the people want boys. Remember, car, uh, China was a one one child. Now I think it's two now. Mm-hmm. But you know the millions of kids that China has slaughtered. And, I'm not women now, yeah. right? Uh, so it's always to the disadvantage of women. Uh, and I, I don't know why women don't see these things. As a matter, take the, take the matter not going off on another subject, but the transgender movement. It's hurting women more than in mm-hmm. the other group. But yet, yeah. this seemed to my mind, I listened to some of them on the radio and uh, talk shows, and they just seem to be willing to support it, and I can't figure it out. Um, this world is confused, but we have to go back to biblical morality, and even though it's inconvenient for us to make a suggestion like that, that a person who's gone through rape should give birth to the child rather than commit abortion, we don't surrender biblical morality because it's inconvenient or it's not palatable to the general public. We must stick to biblical truth uh, because we know ultimately uh, truth wins out. Here's a study I just found on Google. An estimated 92% of all women who receive a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome choose to terminate their pregnancies, according to research reviewed by Children's Hospital of Boston. Anyway, not to run us down that rabbit trail, but the time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.05 on this Tuesday evening. We are glad that you have taken time out of your busy schedule to listen to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, to listen to That's Truth here on CRL, 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at radiolighthouse.org. And also for this program, you can join us on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed. And while you're listening to the program, watching behind the scenes, you can also in the comment section, comment your question for Pastor Murphy, and it'll get passed along to Pastor in a timely manner. We have Brother Williams on the line. Brother Williams, thank you for calling and go ahead with your question, please. Hi, good evening, sir. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. How's your wife doing? Hey, what are you doing? Fine. Good, thanks. What's your question, sir? Yeah, uh, Pastor, if you are deacon or airline church and you see the pastor going on a wrong road, is it wrong that you confront them? If you're what you said, if you're a deacon of a church? Or elder and you see the pastor going down a wrong road, no. is it wrong that you. you no, it, it can't be wrong that you. Uh, um, confront a pastor if he's going wrong. My my only my caveats about that is this: I, I, it should be done 
at a personal level, not in a public display within the church setting. What should happen is that the the person, whoever it is, whether it be a deacon, whether it be a member of the church, if the pastor he thinks he tries to do it wrong, even if he's not sure or he's sure or whatever it is, the proper thing would be to request a meeting with him and express your concerns about whatever um, that matter is. And if there's any validity to it, any truth to it, um, the pastor has got one or two options. It's either he's going to change the direction he's going and... Uh, Get, if the, if it's affected the church and the church knows about it, he should ask forgiveness and pardon and repent. Or he can, in his stubbornness and his pride, completely ignore the the rebuke or the exhortation. And chances are, if he's wrong and he's doing that, it's going to eventually lead to his downfall. So the wise thing would be to take correction, listen to what is being said, whatever is being said. And if it is something that is wrong, if it's something morally wrong, it might have to take require more action. But if it's a decision, a, a personal decision, it's not an unbiblical thing that is, is involved, um, that is something that could be dealt between you and the person uh, and the pastor. Well, I have this question because it happened in, in, in my village in St. Joseph, in the Baptist church where the pastor preaching and I just have a friend that is Adventist and... He allows you to come in back to the church and have the mic and share in quarterly in the church. And because the deacon and the elders, they have turned against it, like the mass of the church. Yeah, well, that, that is, sorry, that is in this question on behalf, <laughs> on the behalf of the pastor. You can't, a pastor got to understand he doesn't own the church. That's the first thing. He doesn't own the church, okay? The church calls him the pastor. He's leading the church. But he doesn't own the church. He just can't do anything he wants to do. Uh, he has to win over the, the people in terms of what his plans are, tell them what his plans are, have a, a healthy debate, is any debate. Uh, if, you know, a pastor might want to build a million-dollar building, but he only got $50,000. I mean, it'd be stupid for a pastor to say, well, I'm going to do it, and then there's no, there's no means of getting it done. So you end up and put the church in debt, and then, of course, she runs off to another church and leave the church holding the bag. So that's why you have to have accountability when it comes to a pastor in relation to those kind of things. And uh, I'm sorry to hear that he would have made that kind of... But, you know, look, everybody makes mistakes, including pastors, but they need to learn from their mistakes. A man like that, if he'd made a decision and like brought somebody into the church that the church felt they should not be in the pulpit... And uh, they should have sat down afterwards and said, listen, we need to talk, Pastor. And the church should meet with the pastor and discuss what has happened and explain to them why they think this should not have happened. And that, uh, you know, what would be the procedure in the future? Uh, unless the pastor has too much pride um, in, in, in him, it is possible for him to say, you know, what? I made a ma- bit bad mistake. I, 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 used my, I did not use my discretion. And um, I... I'm sorry for what I've done. Uh, would you please forgive me? Uh, and in the future, this is how we will proceed if I'm going to make a decision, et cetera, et cetera. I think that would be the proper thing to do. But he's not helping himself by um, blocking himself in and ignoring what people are saying. He's just going to put himself in a worse position. Well, right now, it goes worse because the church go cold, 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 and the elder leave the church because they're not going to sit down and the pastor that preaching wrong doctrine and he you know agree with that. Yeah. And the police the pastor said it was his friend since he was police together. Yeah. And everybody has he had to listen to every doctrine. Yeah. And I know the Bible saying Timothy that in Galatians Paul tell you if any 
this guy angel in heaven come here defend doctrine and what he preached to you yeah. let him be a curse yeah. i don't know why he allowed that to yeah. happen yeah well I just think it's a huge mistake he made, and I, a, a humble man would admit it's a mistake. A proud man, an arrogant person, would probably hold on to his position. But again, it doesn't bring about healing. It creates greater division. And when you lose people in the church who've been there for a number of years, you've got some good elders or some deacons, and they're leaving because of a decision like that. It's sad. Uh, it's unfortunate he can't go back now. And, well, it's still possible for him to bring about healing, but he would have to humble himself and try to reach out to these people and bring them back and then meet with the church, et cetera, et cetera, and admit, I made the wrong choice. I made the wrong decision. It's the wrong thing to do. It takes a big man to do that. Small men can't do that. It takes a big man to do that. So I think he's just going to, it's going to worsen and worsen and worsen because the people that remain there, especially if they they were friends of the elders who were helping to keep the the church in line, um, that's going to be there for a long time. It's a big blotch. And the only way to deal with that is to um, face the conflict, uh, bring the church into, you know, the Bible says you go to one, then you take two, and then it's a church, finally. So if the pastor could go to back to these men and try to bring about healing, or these men come to the pastor to bring about healing, if the pastor doesn't listen, they take one or two other people. If he doesn't listen, you bring the thing to the church. And the church listens to the situation and make their judgment on this matter. So I'm sorry to hear that that has happened, but uh, pastors make mistakes as well, but they need to be able to rectify it when they can. Okay, then. Thanks for me. You're welcome, sir. Thank you very much for your call, Brother Williams. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening, and thanks for encouraging others to tune in to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The phone line is now open and available. We're waiting for your call. You can call and ask your question live on the air in a safe environment. We're not here to mock and ridicule you. You can call 1-268-462-7420. That will put you live on the air after you speak with the call screener. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-782. One four five four, or you can send us your question on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the Facebook Live video feed. Pastor, what advice do you have for an individual who's attending a church but their pastor supports abortion? I hold a very strong position on the matter against abortion. I, I believe that. Human life begins at conception, and it is inconceivable for me to believe that it is possible for a person who believes the Bible, understands the Bible, preaches the Bible, stands in the Bible, has conviction of the Bible, can endorse abortion. It just seemed to me totally impossible for a person to do that. Uh, so I, I, I would advise um, persons like that to get out of the church, find a different Bible-believing church that holds the, the truth about uh, life and conception and, uh, and so on. But I, I, can't, I, I just can't conceive of it happening. Um, I think it's so contrary to what the Bible teaches on the matter of life that um, I think a pastor like that is, is teaching something contrary to Scripture. Therefore, I, I feel that it, it requires a movement out of that church into another ministry. That would be my my view on that that matter with, with abortion. What about a similar uh, question? But instead of abortion, 
the pastor supports or the church supports evolution? Again, I hold a very strong view on that. Uh, I cannot see how a person can be a Christian and an evolutionist. To my mind, is totally impossible. It's either God created or evolution created. And I think the Bible is very, very, very clear that God is the creator. Uh, if I, f- um, I would never advise anybody to join a church where the pastor teaches an evolution. And I would never encourage anybody to remain at the church where the pastor teaches evolution. I think people should leave those type churches and get into Bible-believing churches that take the Bible for what the Bible teaches. The moment you surrender an evolution, you've got to surrender so many other things. And that's why today the churches are so much confusion. The church reneged on taking a position on creation and embraced evolution in the 18th and 19th century. Look where it has gone to. It has had to now embrace homosexuality, and now it's embracing the transgender, and then same-sex marriage. How did you have... It, had they not compromised and held to a strong biblical position, and the reason why they did it in the 18th and 19th century is because they didn't want to be considered to be obscurantists. They were considered to be unintellectual and unscientific by teaching creation when the scientific world was teaching evolution. But remember that the, the, the biology that Darwin knew, the average guy in, in, uh, at the great college doing A-level biology knows more about um, genetics than Darwin knew. So that is where <laughs> the folly of looking back on it now, it, it, it's almost comical that the church surrendered when the church had taken a stand, and it would have been vindicated today. Yeah. But now the evolution has taken on such a, a, a life on its own that um, they're now realizing um, that scientists are not all um, intelligent design. They've got to find some answer because they know the complexity of human life, and especially DNA and the, and the, and the molecule and the, 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 the cell. They know that it just couldn't happen. It's sequential information. So now they're creating this idea of... In, the, 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 what you should say is that we discovered there's a real God. But again, they're too embarrassed now to say we were wrong all these, century, all these uh, decades and centuries. So I think the, the church has made a massive mistake, and as a result... A lot of things are now creeping into the church. Transgender is another one that will creep into the church. And God only knows what's going to be next because the church has surrendered to truth in order to be culturally relevant and in order to to get the endorsement of the intellectuals and and, and the media. Pastor, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what is meant by the phrase, the destruction of the flesh? Well, if you remember in Second Corinthians chapter 5, um, it's a passage that relates to church discipline. Uh, and the reason for Paul calling for church discipline is because there's a young man in the church that is living in incest with his stepmother. And the church is displaying such indifference and callous uh, tolerance that they are actually boasting uh, about what is going on with this young man and his stepmother. And they're exhibiting such callousness towards biblical morality. The Apostle Paul <laughs> is amazed and appalled that a church can actually uh, t- take such a low view on, on church discipline. And what the Apostle Paul uh, says that they need to put the young man out of the church. Paul said, I'm not even there, but I'm there with you in spirit. When you come together, don't let this young man be part of the communion. You put him outside the church. Paul is calling for church discipline. He's asking the church to uh, 
excommunicate this young man from his services until he repents of that sin. So after he repents, then they restore him. But what Paul says is to put him outside the church, that he will now be destroyed and his body be destroyed by Satan, but his spirit be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, that once the young man is outside the pale of the church, the pale of the church is where uh, it's where God's people are, is where God's family belong. And that's the, a protective area where God takes care of his people, shields his people, he's a, a shield to them, etc., etc. By putting him outside the, 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 the communion, putting him outside the church, he's now exposing the world, and the world is Satan's domain. And his weakness is his flesh. So because he will not humble himself and repent and be restored, and in rebellion continues to live in this incestuous relationship, the same problem of the physical uh, desires, the enemy will now use those very desires to destroy his body. And that's what Paul is saying. So unless he repents and comes back and is restored, he's now exposed by the enemy and Satan is going to take advantage of a stronghold in his life and will use that sexual drive that he has to put him further and further away until finally he's, his body's destroyed because of this sexual urge that he can't seem to, to, to control. So it's talking about his actual physical body yeah, actually this, being this destroyed. Phys, this the physical body. Because again, what's, what's his problem? This problem is the flesh. This problem is the insect, and it's, it's a sexual sin as well. And that is, I think, if Christians be honest, uh, I think that we have seen that again and again with young people in the church, young men in the church who have come into the church, they've served it for a number of years, and then they get into immorality. And rather than face the music and, and admit it or whatever it is, they go off. And you meet them two or three years ago, it's like they never heard the gospel, yeah. right? And their life is deteriorating. By then, they've been to one woman, three women, four women, three or four different marriages. And all their life knows a shell. And um, some of them have gotten diseases, uh, whether it be AIDS or herpes or gonorrhea or syphilis or one of the other 24 uh, STDs out there. Uh, but steadily they deteriorate and the body is destroyed. But the wonderful thing that Paul says is that the body is destroyed, but the spirit is saved. I think that's one of the strongest verses in the Bible for what you call eternal security. That even a believer can get so far away from God that he, mm-hmm. he dies but his spirit is saved in the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's one of the great Bible uh, verses as far as I'm concerned about the security of the believer. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, 1160 AM, 92.3 FM from the island of Antigua. If you have a question, you can call and ask it live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. i give that number to you again as you... Reach over for your phone or a pen and paper and write it down to ask your question live on the air. You can call 268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Nathan, I did want to say one thing. One of the uh, interesting things about the same situation we just discovered in First Corinthians chapter 5 is that when Paul wrote the second epistle it seems clear that this young man did repent. The problem now is that the church doesn't want to forgive him. Hmm. And the Apostle Paul uh, says to them, you know what, you know, if you don't forgive the guy you 
push him to the point of desperation, and he might l- uh, lose out. Look at Second uh, Corinthians chapter two, verse uh, five to eleven. Second Corinthians two five to eleven says, "But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part." that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is the punishment which was inflicted of many. So that counter, so that contrawise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. Verse 9. For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave it I it in the person of Christ. In verse 11, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Interesting verse. Paul is saying, okay, he's referring to the same young man. He said, listen, show him three things. Show him forgiveness, show him comfort, and show him love. Why? Because Paul said he could be overwhelmed with sorrow. You mean I've, I've, I've repented, I, I've, I've, uh, the church has put me out there, I've seen the, the enemy attacking me, I've seen I need to repent, I've come back to the Lord, but at the same time the church doesn't want to restore me now. So a person can feel, I, 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 I don't feel good in the world, but I don't seem to belong to the church now, so where am I? That can actually push people to a state of deep depression and also great sorrow, and sometimes those people become very suicidal. Because they don't have any comfort in the world, no comfort in the world. Where do you go for comfort now? And that's why Paul says, you know what? You need to comfort that person. You need to forgive them. You need to show them love because they've repented. They've turned away uh, from what they're doing. Pastor, here's an interesting question. How can someone achieve self-control? I think all of us, uh, quite frankly, um, and it wouldn't be a very unusual person who... (laughs) doesn't uh, display a lack of self-control. You, you make mistakes sometimes. You do something, and you promise you're never going to do it again, and then suddenly you find that um, here you are again doing the same thing. So it's a really big, big matter with, with, with people. Of course, today, um, unlike the Bible, there is a moral philosophy that says that we should be open and we should be honest and that uh, we should be able to express ourselves on without any kind of restraint, Etc. Uh, Etc. Et but the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we ought to exercise some kind of uh, self-control. The Bible calls that temperance. You remember when our Lord, when uh, Paul was preaching to Felix, uh, the governor. Uh, Paul says about him that uh, one day that uh, God is going to deal with us with relation to temperance, righteousness, and judgment. And we're told that when Paul mentions these three things, that. Felix was afraid because he was living a very intemperate life in terms of his uh, liaisons with women, etc., etc. But temperance is a New Testament word that has to do with self-control. And the word, uh, the Greek word that from which this word temperance comes means strength. So it means strength, basically, uh, to, to control. But remember that in spite of the fact that we are Christians, we don't automatically uh, become people who are uh, self-controlled. Uh, we all 
have weaknesses in that area. But the, the Bible tells us several things about self-control. Uh, number one, it tells us in, in uh, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, that it is one of the fruits of the Spirit. If you can read that for me for just a minute. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no That's law. the word temperance. That, that means self-control. So the, when a believer is born again, he has the Holy Spirit within him. And the Holy Spirit's job is to produce the fruit. This is not something that I can produce. This is a fruit of the Spirit, not a fruit of the flesh, or not the fruit of human effort. So one of the, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to produce this quality of, 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 of um, self-control in the believer, which is called temperance. Uh, the other thing that I think would help us to, to gain this idea of self-control is not only being aware that this is a ministry of the Holy Spirit and He's at work trying to create this quality and this, this virtue within us, but I think also uh, from a biblical point of view, when it comes to the matter of self-control over the our flesh, we got to remember that we have new life in Christ and that uh, the Bible makes it clear that the old man has been crucified. We're no longer in Adam. We're now in Christ. So from the biblical perspective, uh, we are new creatures. We belong to a new kingdom. That is a fundamental biblical doctrine. So that the point that Paul makes in uh, Romans chapter 6 and also we discovered in Colossians uh, chapter 3 is that Paul is letting the believers know that when you come to faith and trust in Christ, the flesh no longer uh, controls you. It's no longer the master of you. Not that you can't sin because of the pull of the flesh. But the flesh is no longer in the position of king, rule, or emperor. That power has been broken in the believer's life. And that's a fundamental principle that needs to be borne in mind when we're dealing with this whole matter of, of, of temperance. A third thing I think that would help us to understand how to gain self-control is what Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 14. Romans 13, 13. verse 14. It says... But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Again, this part of self-control. We know as, a, as an individual, uh, we've got to control this fleshly desire that we have. And Paul is saying, make no provision for the flesh. So if I want to have self-control, I must not put myself in a position or engage in any activity that facilitates the temptation of the flesh that would move me in a fleshly direction. For example, if I want control over my sexual drives, I don't put myself in a position where I am alone in a car at 10 o'clock near the beach with a single individual. Uh, there are no other people there. I'm in the darkness, and this is a, a moon, there's a sunlight, I mean, there's a moonlight, etc., etc. That is making provision for the flesh. I don't want to control my, uh, you know, if I want to control my, I don't put a condom in the back of my pocket and I'm going on the day just in case. Uh, again, that is making provision for the flesh. So part of self-control is also regulating our lives and not creating the environment where we will be tempted. That is an element of self-control. Then there's another interesting one, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. It's another principle, I think, when it comes to the matter of control. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Vital principle. Our thoughts 
control our feelings. Our feelings direct our actions. So if I want to uh, break the habit of the action, I've got to control my thoughts. So when my thought life now, I have to deal with that. If I want control of my activities and what I do, my deeds, I've got to get a handle on my thoughts. So I can't uh, be watching salacious movies. I can't be watching uh, sensual things and expect somehow to avoid immorality. Hmm. I can't be uh, in the gambling house where I have a weakness and uh, I've got money in my pocket. I stay away from the gambling house. Okay, I, I, If I have a temptation for, um, for women, I can't be in the prostitute house or I can't be in the striptease uh, place. I'm setting myself for temptation. My thought life has to be controlled if I'm going to get uh, uh, um, self-control. And then, First Corinthians chapter nine, verse twenty-five. First Corinthians chapter nine, verse twenty-five says, "And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible." This is where Paul is saying to us that if we're going to have self-control, we must have a dogged determination to deal with the, the, the body. Keep your body under, you know. God will help you, but I remind you that we are moral creatures that must exert some, some energy. Any idea that you're going to have victory in life and God is going to do it all for you, you have no part to play, is an illusion. That's not how God made you. Uh, God will enable you and give you the power to make certain changes and make certain decisions. But it's not just He doing it all for you. Uh, You have to be engaged in this matter. And Paul is saying, I bring my body into subjection. I doggedly determine that my body is not going to rule my life lest I become a castaway. And then um, the other vital principle uh, is Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Yeah. You know, there are people who uh, will tell you, I don't have a desire to do what God wants me to do. But that's what, what Paul is saying. He gives you that desire and that power to do. It's not just the power he gives. He also gives the desire. And that's where as a believer, uh, again, you tap into God's power. And, of course, you tap into God's power through prayer and intercession. Uh, you remember what Jesus said? Father, if possible, take away this cup from me. Yeah. Right? I mean, he showed us that there are times when you're under such pressure that you need to ask God for an intervention. And that's where you come in there, you ask for divine strength. So those are six principles, basically, that will help you along the way of gaining uh, control, self-control. There's no simple solution, no magic solution to it. But the biblical principles are very, very clear. And if we were to practice the biblical principles, we'll find that we have victory. We have self-control over those areas in our lives that seem to be dominating us and controlling us. If you tuned in partway through that and didn't get all six of those, you can listen to the rebroadcast on Saturday afternoon from 3.30 until 5 p.m. Or you can download this episode. Go to our website, www. Dot radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second large photo that you see 
It's a broadcast microphone. And right in the middle of the screen, when you see the broadcast microphone, there's a circle that says podcast. Click on that. The first link you find after that is for That's Truth Podcast. And you can find this episode, which is number 263. And you can download it. You can share it with your friends. You can listen to it as many times as you need to in order to get all six of those very practical steps. Pastor, why did God not just design the universe that when we accept him as Lord and Savior, when we become a Christian, when we have a right relationship with him, he flips a switch and suddenly that fleshly desires, they just leave us. We just immediately have conquered. We don't know the entire mystery of why God hasn't done certain things. I, I certainly can't look for the day when I don't have an evil thought, when I don't do an evil deed. I'm yeah. not tempted. I look forward to that day. But I think the journey of life towards eternity, uh, one one thing is that we were never designed to live independent of God. So I think part of the reason is to teach us dependency, that we can't do this. We're not sufficient in ourselves. So I think dependency is one of the, the vital principles that are involved. The second thing I think, Nathan, also is maturity, that uh, as we mature, uh, we don't mature immediately. There's a process of maturity, and sometimes there's a weaning process where we our weaknesses uh, are gradually uh, dismantled, okay, or we, we get strength to deal with that. The other thing is, I think, another thing is to make us sympathetic to deal with other people. You can be very, very harsh. Yeah. If, you, if you never sinned, and uh, you see people, man, you, you you forget, as a matter of fact, even now, sometimes you forget that the things you used to do before you were saved, now that you have gotten victory over these things, you look down on your nose at those people and wonder, how in the world could they have ever? Well, I think sometimes, if, so I do think the aspect of uh, dependency, I think the aspect of maturity, and I also think the amount of making us sympathetic towards those who have weaknesses, um, I think that is uh, yeah, involved in the in the in the whole man. So I think those are three things that I can think about why I can conceive of God, not just you know. And the other thing is, that if if it was a fact that we were um, completely made holy, I'm not too sure we'd be needed down here. Hmm. I mean, what, you know, you take us, but we have a mission down here, and remember that we're dealing with sinners, and the sinners need the physician. We become the uh, the agents of the physician, like nurses, basically, to, to reach those people, to bring them into the kingdom. So I also think there's an evangelistic aspect of it. And I think that uh, people don't expect us to be sinners, but they don't expect to be perfect either. They want to see change and transformation. And once they can understand that I'm a transformed sinner, they also believe that they can be transformed. In the so I do think there's an evangelistic element to it as well. So how can a person experience that transformation for the listener that says, Pastor, I have listened to the Radio Lighthouse for 20 years, and I hear people talking about becoming a Christian, but how can I be transformed? How can I have a right relationship with God? There's only one way to have a right relationship with God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. But to exercise that uh, trust and faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says to me that as a sinner who's offended God, guilty before God, the barrier between uh, me and God, why I can't have that relationship, which separates me, as uh, Isaiah 59 says, is my sin. Yeah. 
So I've got to come to the realization that I am a sinner. And I don't mean a good sinner, Nathan. I mean understand the gravity of how evil I am in terms of even my thought life, the things I've done, what I'm doing, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it comes to a matter where I, I sense the guilt of the conviction and the weight of my sin, and I need that to be lifted off of me so I can have this barrier removed between me and God. And the only way that that barrier can remove is the one who came to remove it, who paid for the sin price, who is Jesus Christ. So I come to the point of repentance of my sin, and then I'm willing to exercise faith and trust in Jesus Christ. When I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repent of my sin, the Bible says that God forgive me, God pardons me, God gives me His Holy Spirit to come to dwell within me, and that's where the transformation begins. I have a new nature, I have a new spirit, and that spirit, who is called the Holy Spirit, is there to sanctify me. So, remember the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, it's a new creature. He is, the, the Greek word is becoming a new creature. Okay. All things are passing away, not pass away, all things. It's a gradual process of transformation and sanctification. So the Holy Spirit will now begin to do His work to begin to transform my life to make me more holy. And of course, the Holy Spirit needs something to work with, Nathan. And that's what the Bible says, cleanse them through thy word. So he takes the word and uses the word as the means to transform me, to show me what God expects of me, to bring me into greater conformity with God's will. Because without knowing the word and what God's will is, I can be doing things that are quite contrary to God's will. So the Holy Spirit now uses the word as a sword. And of course, that is a cleansing agent that the Holy Spirit, Spirit uses. So faith and trust in Christ, repentance. And uh, that transformation comes about as a result of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Word. If you are listening to the program from Antigua and you are looking for a Bible-preaching church to attend. Now, if you are already a member of a Bible-preaching church in Antigua, we are not trying to draw you away from your church. But if you are looking to visit a biblically sound Bible preaching church. We would love for you to visit Grace Baptist Church, that is the pastor, the church that Pastor Murphy is the pastor of, in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Sunday school is on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., morning worship service at 10 a.m., and then on Thursday nights at 6.30 p.m., there is a Bible study one week, and the next week, prayer meeting. We would love for you to stop by and uh, worship with us. And if you are enjoying Pastor Murphy's style of teaching, let me encourage you to tune in and listen to his program where he's going through the book of Romans on Sundays. It's entitled Sermons of Grace, and that comes on at 8.15 p.m. on Sundays here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 841. We still have time for your question, but send it in quickly to make sure that there is time to answer it. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. Or you can call 1-268-462-7420, and that number will put you live on the air. Pastor, what is the future state of those who have died without the opportunity to hear the gospel and accept Jesus Christ? And on what basis will they be judged? Well, I think the um, 
Bible answers this question basically in Romans chapter 1 and 2, where the Apostle Paul deals with this, this whole question of the, the heathen. Um, and one of the things that he says, which is staggering, is that the unevangelized heathen are without excuse. And uh, Paul explains that in Romans chapter 1 that God has given certain, revealed certain core truths about himself that uh, everybody can know, including the heathen. And Paul said the two things that God has revealed through what is created, the created order, that man learns two things. Number one, he learns that that God is a God of great power, his eternal power. Uh, And the second thing uh, is his divinity or his deity, that when one looks at the universe and all the created order, the stars, the, the earth, the trees, the animals, etc., etc., you can only come to one conclusion. Whoever made this is eternally powerful. And whoever is eternally powerful is the deity and the divinity that has made this. So uh, the fact that there's a God and the fact that this God is all-powerful are two basic fundamental core truths that God has imparted to man as a result of the created order. And Paul says that creation reveals who God is, and therefore they're all without excuse. So a heathen, no matter who he is, if he responds to the light of creation and recognize that there's an all-powerful God, and this all-powerful God is a sole deity of this world, and he worships that God based on that basic truth. I may not know who you are in fullness, but you reveal this light to me. That becomes a light, and that heathen is responsible for the light that God has given to him. Um, I'm saying that to say this, that I do believe that when people are going to be judged, the judgment is going to be according to the light that God has given to them. and they re- Because I think that, not I think, the, the, the death of Christ has covered the sins of everybody, the whole world. He's a Lamb of God that, uh, that uh, bears the sins of the whole world. Christ tasted death for everyone, for every man. Okay, So His blood is sufficient to cover all. And I believe that according to divine grace, I believe that God will judge people on the basis of the light that they have. Those who did not have time to see Jesus or hear about Jesus, but lived it to that light, I believe that God's grace will cover that. But we all know one thing. We have not all lived up to even the light that we have. And that's the reason why we are commissioned by God to carry the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. We cannot say that the heathen should know God and who he is because of the creation. But we must remember that over 6,000 years of darkness has come upon humankind so that man went to idolatry, etc., etc. So we have a mission to reach those people and share the glad tidings with them. But in terms of uh, what are the judicial uh, standards by which men will be judged, uh, Paul tells us that in in Romans chapter 2. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 2. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. So, we know one thing, that however God's going to judge all of us, the basis on which God judges is the truth. Okay, What truth did we know? What truth did He reveal to us? What truth did we respond to? What truth did we rebel against? So the element of truth is going to be one of the standards by which God will judge men. Look at verse 6 of the same chapter who will render to every man according to his deeds. Again, 
uh, there's a second principle of divine judgment, not just truth, but my deeds, what I did with my body, what I did with my mind, uh, what I did in, with my thinking, my actual activities, what I did. So I can't say, you know, I'm not guilty. God said, but this is what you did. And what you did is contrary to what I've revealed to you. So my acts uh, and my deeds are going to be another standard, not just the truth now that he's revealed to me, but how did I respond to that truth, how did I react to it, and the deeds that indicated whether or not I accepted that truth or believed that truth or practiced that truth. And then look at Romans 2.11, a third principle. For there is no respect of persons with God. He's going to judge with impartiality. See, not because a man is a Jew or a man is a Gentile that God uh, shows favor to him because of the fa- or because of his nationality or his pigmentation, ethnicity, or because of his color or his race or whatever. That's not the basis. God will judge totally and impartially based on the truth and the light that we have and what deeds we did in our life. And then look at uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 16. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Again, notice that the, the good news is standard would be one of those things by which we base, uh, God bases judgment. Did we hear the gospel? Did we respond to the gospel? But there are four of them. Don't forget that. But one of those principles is going to be the gospel. Did we respond to the gospel? So those who had an opportunity to hear the gospel, that will be the standard for them. The light we have is going to be the basis on which God judges. us. And I do believe that the blood of Christ covers uh, as, as, as that, that the whole sin problem. And God's grace will be active in that day, depending on the amount of light He gave us and how we responded to it. Now, having said all of that, uh, we must remember that we have been given a mandate and a commission to go to the heathen and go to the uttermost parts of the world and share the glad tidings. We just can't use it. Well, if that's the basis, therefore, we don't have any responsibility. No, we all know that had not somebody come and shared the gospel with us, we'd be heathens like other people. I'm so glad that missionaries came to Barbados in the 60s and shared with us the gospel. And as a result of the gospel, I heard the gospel, responded to Christ, was transformed, and therefore I, I share in the benefits of Christ's death and will one day uh, be taken to heaven and will not share in, in the, the judgment of hell. But what if they had not come? What if I had not heard the gospel? Uh, I would be just like a heathen in any part of the world. So I'm, I, I th- I'm glad that someone heeded the call of missionary work and brought the glad tidings to us. Now we need to heed the call and carry that gospel. And if we can't carry the gospel ourselves because we're not called to be missionaries, we can give towards that work, we can pray towards uh, that work, but we can either pray or give or we can go. But uh, that is what we need to do today in terms of, uh, if you're concerned about the heathen, uh, that's, I think I told a story on, on, on this radio some time ago, Nathan, where I was in St. Croix, and I was I went to get my glasses changed, and I was talking to the the um, the the gentleman who fixed the glasses. Basically, he um, was telling me he's an Indian, and he was saying to me basically that one of the problems he had with the Christianity is that what happened to those who don't hear the gospel? Uh, they're they're lost and they're damned. 
And he was saying, but they seem so unfair that the West has all the gospel mm. and that part of the world doesn't have the gospel. I said, that is true. But I said, are you really concerned? He said, Indian. I said, are you really concerned about what's happening in India? Why don't you give up your job, become a missionary, and carry the glad tidings? Now, he wants some person to carry the gospel to his country, mm. but he's not willing to make the sacrifice to do the same thing. And uh, I think the tables turned on him that day because he thought he had a strong argument against Christianity. I said, uh, I said to him, if people are lost and they're not reached with the gospel, we are responsible. But you are also responsible you are deeply concerned. So if you're really concerned about your people, you could share the glad tidings with them as well. So I hear what you're saying, the collective uh, and the verses and the principles you're sharing. But if a person were to say to you, Pastor Murphy... Can a person be in heaven if they have not accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior? Well, let me put it this way. Do you think Abraham accepted Jesus Christ as Savior? No, I'm just serious. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. very honest yeah. with you, right? He's looking forward to the Messiah coming. Right, 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 right. But to say that he personally accepted Christ, you can't, you can't say that. Yeah. He acted on the truth that the Messiah is coming. That is the truth that he was given. So he True. believed in that truth. But again, uh, I, I, the point is that the Messiah comes and he pays for the sins of the whole world. And God exercises that grace as a result of paying for sin. And I believe I believe that when God gives light, whatever light that God gives, that the person lives up to that light that God has given, I do believe that that allows God to show grace and mercy to that person. So I do believe that if a, a heathen, uh, think of the worst part, the darkest part of the world, who one day comes to the realization that there is an all-powerful God that made all of this, and He alone is divine, and He comes to that God in the way He says, God, I don't know who you are, but clearly from what you, you're a great, powerful God, and you're the only God. Show me more light, give me more light. I believe that God will give him more light. Mm-hmm. It might be able to send somebody along that way. Um, again, God can speak in ways that we never speak before. God can speak through dreams. God can speak through a different means. Can make a donkey speak. Right. So I believe that once you respond to the light, God gives you more light, and you're held responsible for that light. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM and 92.3 FM. We have five minutes left in this episode of That's Truth, and we would love to hear your question, but please send it in as soon as possible. You can WhatsApp or text it to 1-268-782-1454. There's a basic question, maybe complex, but basic. Pastor, how do you determine what is right and what is wrong? Well, when it comes to right and wrong, you're dealing here with morality, you're dealing here with ethics. And quite frankly, when you think about it, Nathan, there are only four sources of information or data that relates to what is right or wrong. There are only four sources, basically. Number one is your intuition. You can go on pure intuition, what you think as an individual is right or wrong. That okay. is one direction you can go. The second one that you could probably think about is the fact that what the culture says right. or what the government says, uh, that, that determines... By the way, there are people who believe that now, that the, it's a culture that we have culturized, and depending on which culture you belong, you belong to, there's something right or wrong. The third one, of course, is the matter that the church... The church is the voice of God, and therefore the church can set whatever is right or wrong. Uh, 
the best answer is the scriptures, God's revealed truth. So we're only open to basically four different ways of, of deciding what is right or wrong. And the Bible makes it quite clear uh, itself that God has revealed to us within the moral law the basic fundamental principles of right or wrong. And by the way, uh, all societies, with very few exceptions, agree with those fundamental core principles that you find in the New Testament. You could go anywhere on planet Earth, you'll find a, a, a person believe that you shouldn't make a, break up a person's marriage. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't lie uh, to people, etc., etc. Uh, you should worship some kind of a God, basically. So the, the core principles are there, and the Bible makes it quite clear that it is God that determines. In other words, there are some certain transcendent truths that are universal among all peoples from all societies. Uh, and, and it's my belief that the only final source of what is absolute transcendent truth is Scripture. If you don't have a, a transcendent basis of, of truth, you are in a flux and you end up what is called relativism. And today, by the way, uh, the ruling principle of ethics is what's called situation ethics. And what that really means, Nathan, is that right or wrong is dependent on the situation. And as long as this, uh, in that situation you do what you think is loving, it is right. So there may be cases where the loving thing to do is to steal, hmm. or the loving thing to do is to commit adultery, etc., uh, etc. Et that leads to moral confusion eventually. There has to be some absolute transcendent standard. And there's only one source of an absolute transcendent standard, and that's the God of heaven who has revealed himself in his word and has told mankind what he expects of them, what is his will. So right and wrong, as far as I'm concerned, is finally determined by what the scripture says. And that is why sometimes what government says, what culture says, what my intuition says, even what the church says, goes contrary to scripture. I must decide now. What's the final authority? For me as a Christian, the final authority is God's word. That is what establishes right or wrong. And that's why we can say to people about abortion. No other person can, uh, group can answer the question of why abortion is wrong. Only the Christian can answer that question because God gives life and man is made in the image of God. And God himself says, who takes man's life should be taken. So that's the basis. That's why we can say that um, transgenderism is wrong. Because God made male and female two genders. He didn't make three genders or nine genders. I don't know how many genders there are today. We can say that. We can say why homosexuality is wrong. Not because society uh, accepts it, but God says a male and a female, that's how he made them, and that is an abomination of practice. There are a lot of things today that culture endorses that as Christians, we can speak authentically that these things are wrong. And I don't know why we have surrendered our moral authority and is now given into the culture. As a result of that, the church is becoming corrupt and holding the same basic flawed standards. How do you have a conversation on right and wrong with someone who's of a different worldview? And what I mean by that is someone who doesn't hold that Scripture is the basis. Maybe it's what's politically correct or what's socially acceptable. Well, the, the worst thing you can do is to surrender your position. Uh, we believe that the Bible is inspired. We believe that this is God's word and God has set the standard, etc., etc. So we must never surrender that position. We can debate and see where that person's philosophy eventually ends up, where it leads humankind and society. And normally, it leads to complete moral chaos. So sometimes you have to show them the, the benefits of the biblical position and where it leads to higher morality. 
And uh, so sometimes you can rationalize with them and argue with them, et cetera, et cetera, and try to bring evidence to prove that the biblical position is, is, is better supported. But other than that, you can't convince a man against his will. So you're going to have to get the, his will to yield to the authority of Scripture. And that's where arguing and persuading comes in. Paul went into the synagogue with the Jews and he argued with them, persuading that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Sometimes we've got to go through that process of arguing and debating with those people. In the last 25 seconds, is it possible to be a good enough debater to debate someone into the kingdom of God? No, you can't debate people into the kingdom. You can just rationalize with them and, and talk with them. But you can't force anybody into the kingdom. Paul waters, planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. It is God that actually brings about that person's conversion. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We look forward to having you interact with us next week. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM, If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.